0: This episode of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Benjamin Belcher, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 485 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Joseph Reiser. He's the Harriet S. Wiswell and George C. Wiswell Professor of American Constitutional Law at Colby College. And is the author of the book Jean-Jacques Rousseau, A Friend of Virtue from Cornell University Press. He also taught me most of what I know about constitutional law and political theory. And we'll be speaking with to him today about Aldous Huxley's classic novel Brave New World. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the book, so just be aware of that. And now here's our interview with Joseph Reiser. All right, so we're here with Joseph Reiser. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, David. Glad to be here.
2: Okay, so first of all, how big of a science fiction fan were you growing up?
1: I was actually a pretty big science fiction fan i uh read a lot of like Asimov and heinlein um got a hold of dune when I was about twelve maybe um and read that and I won't say I altogether understood it the first time I read it but mm-hmm. uh I was entran you know i loved it i uh found everything I could actually by um Frank Herbert and just tore through his novels and short stories. And they, there were some really weird things in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh let's see. So that was, and and of course I had a sort of sideline in fantasy. I was a big Tolkien nerd as well. Mm.
2: What are some of the weirdest things in Frank Herbert? I've only read Dune by him. So.
1: Well, let's see. So there was this, it's a story, novella, Hellstrom's hive, uh where there's a kind of bee colony like group of I guess they're peopleish and they must be Homo sapiens and they, they kind of are are spreading and of course uh I believe our eponymous this is a long time ago that I read it, yeah, so yeah. I may have the story wrong, but I think our hero is a kind of detective trying to figure out what's going on and you know, he finds out too late by being assimilated or some such thing. Um, uh, but it's the, it, the, the messing around with biology, you know, that it was controlling people through pheromones and, uh, you know, there was a sex scene that was probably shocking and titillating <laughs> to the 15 year old version of me. Uh, and, uh, there was another one might be the Dosadine experiment. If I remember this right, that you know, there's a, a planet where they're, basically confined to the planet by some kind of, uh, force field or some such thing that you know, you can't get into outer space. And there's a reason it's, it's some kind of weird, uh, test of some kind, you know, that they're trying to breed this species to, I don't know, they have to become mean enough to break out or something. I, I don't remember, but, uh, but anyway, just interesting, odd ideas. Uh, another one where they, they build an AI that then demands to be worshipped. <laughs> hmm. That sounds really God. cool. And,
2: and so you said you were, that was sort of, you were like 15 or so when you were reading those. And then did you keep reading science fiction into college and grad school and,
1: and so on? Uh, on and off. Actually, I went through a, a period of, uh, I don't know. When I was about 16 or 17, I discovered Dostoevsky. And so I went, I went hard into the Russian novels for a while. And, uh, You know, I did read Kim Stanley Robinson, the Mars trilogy at some point, um, you know, in graduate school or shortly after, not long after they came out, I think. Um, recently I've been reading a a fair amount of, uh, of science fiction just after work, I guess, Dostoevsky is a little heavy to be reading at night. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, although on the other hand, some of the recent stuff, I mean, the, uh, The Three-Body Problem uh, and and its sequels were very dark. (laughs) Yeah. Very dark, indeed.
2: I mean, I thought you might be a science fiction fan because I just have this really vivid memory when I took your uh, intro to political theory class where you said you were looking for a babysitter. You said that you and your wife had not been out of the house in like two years or something, but you said you wanted to go see the new Star Trek movie, so you were looking for a babysitter.
1: (laughs) Fair enough, yeah. That... uh, I was a, a big Star Trek fan. Uh, you know, I I was a kid during the 70s. And so the original series was on pretty much constant rotation on syndicated TV, you know, back in the day when there were three, four, three channels and maybe one thing on UHF. And so I watched a lot of, I mean, I just watched the original series over and over. And I think I had paperback Paperback books, you know, novel or story versions of the plots. So I must have read, you know, read those obsessively. Um, I was kind of late to, and the next generation started when I was in college and in those days when it was, we didn't have a TV set in our room and didn't really start watching it. Um, probably until, until graduate school, picked it up midway through and then tried to work my way back. Um, The first couple of seasons, I really didn't like that much.
2: Did you ever have this sense of Star Trek as this kind of left-wing future?
1: Um, you know, it's interesting. When I was a kid, it didn't, it didn't feel as left-wing. I mean, it really just felt, I mean, I knew, I mean, even as a kid, I knew it was progressive and, oh, look, you know, it's still the Cold War going on and there's a Russian on the bridge, you know, and it's interracial and. This, what struck me and, and what I still actually like about it is, is the optimism of the vision. I just found that so, so appealing. Um, you know, and, and the sort of mediating balance among, you know, if you think of Kirk as kind of courage or spiritedness and Spock as reason or intelligence and, uh, McCoy is basically, uh, you know, heart or friendship or some such thing, you know, that, that all three of them turn out to be, be necessary. And, you know, you find them, I mean, there are at least a few original series episodes where they come upon a, an apparently perfect but stagnant society, right, that either lacks, they're either or maybe all both limits on intellectual inquiry and on whatever assertiveness, exploration, you know, daring and the the enterprise folks bring it down. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: and speaking of stagnant societies, I mean, you know, in in that same class, actually, the intro to political theory class, one of the books that you assigned was Brave New Worlds. And I was just curious, could you talk about why you wanted to assign sort of this dystopian science fiction novel in a political theory class?
1: So there are a couple of reasons, and, and I wish I could claim, uh, that this idea was original with me, but actually, um, I got the inspiration, uh, from the first political theory class I took as an undergraduate, which would have been in the fall of 1985. And, uh, the professor, uh, at that time assigned an intro to political theory class that began with Plato and ended with Brave New World. And, you know i thought he he made a lot of the connections for us then that i think uh, i try to bring out when i teach it in my class uh sort of structurally there are a couple of reasons why it i think it fits well one is it it does um i, I think it does connect very naturally back to the sort of core debate in 171 uh, intro to political theory, um, that I set up kind of between this Aristotelian vision of life dedicated to excellence and virtue and a kind of you know Hobbesian world of uh desire satisfaction oriented around basically peace, you know, peace, stability, order. And you know, the Brave New World is is of course Perfectly, or designed to be, intended to be perfectly static, uh, kind of the fulfillment in a way of everything Hobbes wants, I think. Um, and, and of course, the savage has this, um, Aristotelianism, for lack of a better word, right? This longing for virtue. It's a kind of Christian longing for virtue or Christian-ish mediated by Shakespeare. But, uh, so it, it's useful for that purpose. And then, um, one, one shouldn't underestimate the importance of having a light, easy reading at the end of a long semester right before people take exams. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
2: so I was looking at the the Colby website, and it looks like there's a class that you're involved with called, or a course called IS one forty nine A Utopia and Dystopia, and it looks like there's three different classes that are all, are, all kind of related. But um, the the works that are mentioned in those three. Uh, descriptions are The Republic by Plato, Utopia by Thomas More, The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, A Modern Utopia by H.G. Wells, 1984 by George Orwell, We by Yevgeny Zamyadin, Brave New Worlds by Aldous Huxley, and then The Joke by Milan Kundera. So, is that a pretty good list of sort of the, the most important dystopian political theory kind of works?
1: Well, I, they're a set that fit really well together. There's certainly a, a bunch of others that one one could have chosen. Um, yeah, the integrated study. Just to kind of clarify, it's a little program we have at Colby that creates kind of super freshman seminars uh, out of two or, in my case, three uh, linked courses. So there's one taught uh, by me, which is the political theory piece. There's a literature and freshman writing composition course uh, taught by a colleague, Milan Babik. And then there's a kind of history of utopia course uh, taught, by, uh, taught by another colleague uh, named Jesse Meredith. And so the same 15 students take all three courses. Uh, so it's, you know, I'm not teaching we, that's being taught in the literature class, but I get to uh, refer to it. I mean, they're, uh, just on Thursday... We sort of compared the, the first city in the Republic, the, it, it's a kind of, uh, city based on the satisfaction of material needs, right? Which, uh, Glaucon will reject because, you know, he thinks it's fit for pigs. Um, <laughs> but it's got this sort of bucolic harmony to it. And so we sort of, I compared that, uh, to the Garden of Eden, uh, which then, you know, then I brought in sort of Rousseau's account of the fall from the discourse on inequality and Kant's account of the, the expulsion or the fall from, uh, uh, why am I forgetting the pompous name of the thing? <laughs> uh, conjectural inquiry into the beginnings of history or some such title. Uh, and even in we, there's a, a moment where one of D five, D five Oh three poet friend. R 13 is, you know, there the juxtaposition is right in the garden they were unfree but happy why did they choose freedom and then all of human history was then a search for unfreedom and happiness and and so this is sort of the story that one state is telling about itself
2: so have you been teaching brave new worlds every year for the last 20 years or do you kind of switch (laughs) it up or
1: i it, it i won't i won't say every year but most of the time, I think there were a couple of iterations um, where where i I dropped it out, but it's just a it, it's it's worked so well. it's something you can get students to talk about uh, you know they're likely actually to read it in that uh, early December time when people's minds are turning toward final exams and completing final projects. Um, so yeah, I've taught it a lot.
2: So do you do you have sort of have your thoughts about it changed at all after talking about it over such a long period
1: of time? Um that's an interesting question. I, I'm afraid I'm going to sound shallow if I say they haven't changed much, but uh maybe I see more you know I you know more more connections or 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 different connections. Um but the the basic the basic contour of the thing, I think, is pretty straightforward. That is the, you know, the Brave New World, um, you know, presents itself as the world in which it, it, you're going to achieve stability because, um, nobody's ever going to want anything they can't get. And anything they ever want, they're always going to get. Now, obviously, the solution to that, well, at least the Brave New World solution to that is just to condition people so that they only want the sorts of things that they can be easily given. And the cost of that, and, you know, I just love that confrontation at the end between, uh, the world controller, Mustafa Mann, and, uh, Helmholtz, and, and then after he walks out, it continues with John. And, you know, I think the the case for the brave new world is put pretty well there. Okay. Yeah. Stability means the sacrifice of the noble. It means the sacrifice of name, But if the alternative is a, you know, catastrophic war of annihilation, like, this looks pretty good.
2: <laughs> yeah, let me just, in case anyone listening to this hasn't actually read the book, let me just set up sort of, the basic ideas were uh, 500 years or so in the future in London and the society, all the children are born are, are sort of decanted in these vats and are um, sort of engineered to be of different castes from the top, the alphas to the bottom, uh, the epsilons. And the alphas have ordinary human intelligence or maybe enhanced human intelligence. And then the, the lower castes are designed to be less intelligent so they can do more menial jobs and not get bored. And there's lots of, uh, everyone's encouraged to have as much sex with everyone else as they want or can have from, from an early age. And there's lots of, uh, there's this drug called Soma, which is this uh, sort of recreational drug with no hangover. So you can just kind of take as much of it as you want. And yeah. And the whole society is, is just built around sort of indulging, you know, doing work and indulging in childish thoughtless pleasures. Is that, is that a pretty good, is that a pretty good story?
1: Yeah. Yeah, And everyone is designed, you know, and, and educated and conditioned, I guess conditioning is a key word in the novel, um, sort of habituated, but sort of hypnotized and brainwashed, basically, to want to do what they're obliged to do by their social role. Um, so that, you know, if you think about it, we're all trying to figure out, you know, in, in our world, well, gosh, you know, where do I fit in? What job should I have? Am I really doing the thing that I'm potentially best at, or or, or did I miss out? Sometimes? should I have, should I've gone to med school twenty years ago? Like, um, you know, I have a child who's a couple years out of college, right? She's trying to figure out, well, what does she do in the Brave New World? That's that's not a problem. You just, you know, you're engineered, genetically engineered from birth, and and conditioned so robustly that the only thing you want to do is the one thing you're best suited for, and so you fit right in.
2: Right. And another, I guess, big aspect of the plot is that there are these reservations where the society, there, there are these areas that are just not worth them developing. And so then the people are, are kind of living in, you know, sort of hunter-gatherer type societies. And so there's a character, Linda, who had gone to one of these reservations and got left behind. And so she's been stuck in this reservation for the last 20 years or whatever. And she's and she's raised this child, John. and And she remembers... The Brave New World Society, as this, like, basically paradise. Like, she loved everything about it and, um, and has just told him how great it is. And so it's just interesting, you know, that it's this dystopian novel, but to a lot of the people in the society, um, this is a very appealing place to live.
1: Well, that's right. And, you know, the impression, I mean, the story is told, uh, more or less following, um, Bernard Marx, who's a kind of misfit in the Brave New World, uh, and he's weirdly trying to impress, uh, um, uh, Lenina Crown, I guess, by taking her to the Savage Reservation. And that's where they meet, uh, John and Linda and, and they bring them back to, to London, um, which, you know, then for a brief time makes, hmm. uh, Bernard, uh, a celebrity. And, um, you know, in, in due course, of course, there's a, a conflict that, I mean, I guess, spoiler alert, right? When Linda <laughs> dies, uh, John, uh, you know, John kind of snaps and his disgust at the Brave New World, uh, is unleashed. And so he decides he's going to liberate the, I think their Delta cast, maybe just Gamma cast workers at the, hospice for the dying by throwing away their Soma their drug uh, you know uh rations and, you know, be men, be free, he shouts to them. Uh and so a riot ensues and you've gotta love the Brave New World. They break up the riot by uh foaming everyone with kind of you know, uh, soma soma gas, and I think they have anesthetic water pistols, so people fall asleep. And then there's like the big booming voice of their uh, hypnotic instruction telling them, I think urging them to start an orgy. I think it actually ends in orgy, <laughs> this riot. Uh, and, 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 then that's, that's what brings, uh, John and Bernard and Bernard's friend Helmholtz, uh, into their, um, conversation with the, the world controller. So, um, so one of the things that you asked, what about my opinion changed over time? Um, one thing, that I guess I didn't fully appreciate uh, early on is kind of what a, what a basically bad guy Bernard Marx really is. Um, it, you know, on one hand you sort of, you're set up to kind of like him because, well, after all he's revolted by the aspects of the, you know, this hedonistic consumeristic uh, sex obsessed society that, that I think we're kind of supposed to be, um, repulsed by you know but at the same time he's he's um irascible he's very insecure he lashes out when his vanity is wounded uh you know when he returns with john in tow and becomes a celebrity then he becomes a kind of horrible social climber who you know now that he sort of fits into the brave new world because people are giving him the kind of respect he craves you know he he acts shabbily to his friends and so there's all of that that i guess over time i noticed more and more and it maybe became a little difficult to take as i reread the book
2: no it's funny how bernard has this complete reversal from from being so obsessed about the injustice of the society when he's on the bottom to not caring about that at all when he's on the top (laughs) It was reminding me. I don't know if it's still there. When I when I was at Colby, there was a cartoon up in the hallway of the government offices where there are these three fish. There's a tiny fish, a medium sized fish, and a big fish. And the medium sized fish is about to eat the tiny fish, and the big fish is about to eat the medium sized fish. And the tiny fish is thinking, "There's no justice in the world." The medium sized fish is thinking, "There's some justice in the world." And the big fish is thinking, "The world is just." And you know that really captures that. You know the. How how shallow Bernard's uh, you know uh, philosophical commitments are, you know it just depends so much on how he's personally being treated.
1: No, absolutely, and I, I think about that cartoon all the time. But uh, I don't think it made the move with us from the uh, library over to the Diamond Building. Yeah,
2: no. well, you should get a put up get a get another get another one. I like that. Get another
1: one. It was it, it, it's a classic. I, I do think about it a lot. Yeah. Um, but so,
2: and I agree with you that I was really taken by this part where Mustafa Mans, the the world controller for Western Europe or something, he uh, you know he gives this defense of the of the Brave New World society, uh, where he where he basically says you know that you know it, it used to be okay to let people be people, but modern technological society is so fragile and it would be so catastrophic if the whole thing breaks down that that that's sort of a luxury we we can't, that the sort of normal humanity is a luxury we can't afford anymore. And everyone has to you know play their part in keeping this machine going because it'll be, you know, millions will starve if, if these factories stop making food and stuff like that. Um, do you, is there anything about his, uh, his argument that you, you're like, yeah, I can kind of, I can kind of agree with that.
1: Um, it's certainly attractively put. Um, the thing that really strikes me, when when I think about Brave New World, is you know how much of the apparatus of the Brave New World we're kind of willingly putting into place ourselves, like not not as a matter of central government control necessarily, but of sort of decentralized things we're we're choosing on our own. So that's that's the aspect of it that that I fear more. Um, You know, would I, living in the world of that timeline, kind of agree with the world controller? (sighs) You know, I want to be more optimistic than that. I really do want to believe that, um, you know, and maybe it's this, right, that, that there would have to be some kind of maybe continuous growth model expansion beyond the planet um you know that would stop us all from killing one another here because we you know we care so desperately about whether odessa belongs to you know russia or whether it belongs to an independent ukraine like maybe maybe there comes a point in our development where we don't have to fight about those things as much because there's somewhere else to go and new things to do and so many New places to go and things to do that you know we're not fighting over who controls this port or this little waterway. But um, I don't know. I think I think you stumped me a little bit.
2: <laughs> well, no, and certainly as a science fiction fan, I can totally endorse the idea of you know if we could get off of Earth and expand elsewhere, that would be uh, that would be really great. Um, but you were saying there are there are aspects of this world that you feel like we're putting into practice just on our own, even without a central authority pushing them? Like what are some of the, what are some of the ways that you see brave new worlds kind of coming true around us?
1: Well, I mean the, the choice for quick pleasure over, you know, over excellence, right. I mean, you know, there's this, uh, the scene, which, you know, in some sense is a, a, a comic scene, but it, it, encapsulates a lot of what the novel's about. Um, you know, the the woman who had gone out to the Savage Reservation, uh, Lenina, you know, we're supposed to believe is, is young and beautiful and all the ways that uh, nice, healthy 26th century or whatever it is, Londoners are supposed to be, and John is, of course, smitten with her. John somehow has kind of old-fashioned ideas about um, saving himself for marriage and you know, earning the love of a good woman, and he wants to sacrifice and prove that he's worthy of her love by achieving something and wants to wait because the, the waiting will make the the love and the marriage mean something. And so, you know, although she's flirted with him, he hasn't made the first move. Right. And so Lenina's sensible friend, Fanny says, well, just, you know, wear something sexy, take a little Soma and head on over to the apartment and take matters into your own hands. And so she does. And, you know, she disrobes and, basically says, take me now. And he doesn't, right? He says, you know, shouts at her, you know, impudence, strumpet. She runs in terror into the bathroom. And you you teach that, and you really, you look around a classroom, right? Okay, gentlemen, like, how many boys in this room are not going to just take her down? And the number is very small.
2: I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, certainly there's a lot of ways in which this book, which was written in 1932, I mean, it seems to prefigure a lot of the sexual revolution and the hookup culture and stuff, but I sort of, and I'm not, a, you know, it's been a long time since I was in college, but I don't know. But what what I've read is that there's actually been sort of a, um, you know, sort of like an increase in like anxiety around sex and approaching people and things like that. I read something where it was saying that something like uh, 50% of men between the ages of 18 and 25 have not had sex in the past year. And that there's actually been this big, you know, that the, the, the amount of sort of uh, free love kind of, you know, sort of peaked and plateaued and has actually started to dip quite considerably. Um, I don't know if that's, you know. Uh, you
1: know, I've read that, that, uh, read that too. Uh, I mean, I haven't, you know, I certainly don't take polls of my students and so what they're up to. <laughs> Um, you know, but it doesn't seem to me it's accompanied by a revival of a kind of, um, you know, ethos of romance and lifelong love. I mean, it does seem to be maybe a byproduct of the, you know, availability of, of internet porn, which is, you know, ubiquitous, basically. And, you know, people seem to be attending to their own needs, and I don't know, it's, it's so hard to tell, and, and I do think, I mean, young people today are are anxious in so many more ways than, you know, than than certainly they were thirty five years ago when I was in college.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's definitely not because of a, a resurgence of uh, chastity or, or anything like that. I mean, it's it, I think it is. You're right. It's all sort of about the technology and you know, and people um, being raised to. Yeah, this to sort of be more insular and, you know, in, on online and in their phones and, um, you know, and also like the, the I think the dating apps have made it have, have created sort of this more free market for sex, which has benefited, you know, I think it's like has, has really benefited sort of the top 20 percent of, of men in terms of attractiveness and sort of leaves the, the bottom 50 percent or something completely out out in the cold. And it seems like that's something that, yeah, that the Brave New World it kind of like projected, you know, projected forward accurately, you know, for uh, seventy years or something. But that we've kind of like gone a little bit past some some of these technologies hmm. are having these sort of second order effects that this this novel wasn't quite uh, uh, anticipating.
1: Well, right, and and you know, interestingly, I mean, I guess from the point of view of maybe the. You know, the, the people left out in, in that kind of market, you know, Brave New World would be a superior alternative since it's really, I mean, there is a deep egalitarianism, um, you know, with respect to the, all the pleasures, you know, everybody belongs to everybody else, <laughs> they say. And, you know, it's, it's kind of expected that you'll sleep around, right? That, that actually what's, it's your social duty, right? It's, and, and, you know, you, you think of what the, The sort of parody religious service, you know, there's like basically 12 people that seem to be chosen, you know, by lottery. And then, you know, they have this manufactured, uh, moment of sort of intensity that merges quickly into an, again, into an orgy. Um, and, you know, the whole point of it is that it's a, a group, a group celebration, so to speak.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that that sort of the ethos in the book of everybody belongs to everybody, you know, is definitely more of a sort of Marxist thing. And, you know, you mentioned like the character, obviously, Bernard Marx is named after Karl Marx and Lenin is named after Lenin. And a lot of the characters are named after these sort of, um, you know, Marxist figures. And I think that, that that sort of, you know, that that sort of left wing ideology certainly has a certain um, appeal among young people today, but but nowhere near to the extent that this book would sort of, uh, you know, predict, you know, that, that, that
1: it seems to me anyway. No, but if, if, I mean, I guess the hard thing for me, you know, is the way the book sets it up, basically, you know, there's the, the brave new world society, which is decided to remake people. So again, so that, you know, they never want what they can't get. They always get what they want. So desire, satisfaction, um, you know, ha- if that's your model of happiness, right? If, if happiness is getting what you want over and over again, then that's perfectly achieved. And, you know, the, the sort of another way to think of that society is it's always avoiding choosing against pain, right? There's really nothing worth suffering for. I mean, I guess some suffering is inflicted as part of the early childhood conditioning. But is it, you know, the, the adult society should be, a kind of smooth ride of pleasure after pleasure. Um, the Savage Reservation sort of, there's some reflections uh, in the preface by Huxley in the paperback edition I have, where he, he wanted the two alternatives he said at the time to be kind of you know, madness and insanity. And the Savage Reservation, it's really, you know, the, the, the central ritual you see there is, is, is a kind of who can endure the most pain, the longest essentially for the good of the community. And you you know, so that you really have, okay, there's the, if these are your choices, the, the, just the embrace of pain for the sake of the embrace of pain. And, you know, well, let's just sacrifice everything for kind of, um, impulse satisfying pleasure you know that between those two options pleasure is going to win every time and you know telling the story of um of struggle of excellence of virtue of self sacrifice of all those things you know i think that's just a hard sell
2: <laughs> i mean obviously um you know i know that you're a big you're very interested in jean jacques rousseau and it's yes. been a while since i took your class but i mean the way i remember it is that he had these ideas about you know the state of nature and and kind of the you know so, to some extent at least the desirability of of the way people are formed morally in a state of nature and things like that and do you see this the the the, the sort of savage reservation in this novel at all through the lens of of Rousseau
1: um I think it's an interesting question, Dave, but I, I kind of think not really. I mean, because the, the reservation is, is still here. Got a weird mixture of kind of remnants of sort of the lost pre Brave New World civilization, right? So there's still, there's like a crucifix and an, an eagle and an American flag, I think are the things they're like all venerating and it's Jesus and a kind of native God. And so there's a, there's a flotsam of culture to it. Um, and, you know, whereas Rousseau, you know, Rousseau's thought basically seems to be that what he's really trying to illustrate by imagining a kind of harmonious, and it's not a perfectly, but mostly harmonious state of nature is he's really trying to illustrate the mismatch between a lot of our, um, instincts or at least the way our instincts typically manifest themselves in a kind of competitive hierarchical society um and and what would produce harmony you know if you think of like we evolved to be hunter gatherers <laughs> and some instincts that might have served us well in those circumstances when mediated through the structures of civilization you know or maybe that's maybe the the problem Right. And he's trying to figure out, well, how do you, Rousseau is trying to figure out how do you restructure society? How do you cultivate character, you know, to bring about the harmonious development of both and the harmonious good development of both? I mean, he, I'd like to think, would be horrified by the Brave New World. Mm
2: hmm. Um... I actually, because the one of the reasons I ask is because I had picked up a copy of your book, Jean Jacques Rousseau, A Friend of Virtue, uh, and I just read a couple chapters of it last night. And I actually, I don't know if I, I remember this or if I if I knew this, but that he actually thought that fiction could be used to provide a moral, to to make people virtuous, essentially.
1: Well, that was that's my somewhat eccentric claim about it. But I think it accounts for why he wrote two novels. Um, you know, and it, it was not just to, to sell books. I mean, I think <laughs> both of them. Well, and in, in you know, in that age, there was no real copyright protection, and he didn't know how to, or refused to sort of play whatever games he would have had to play to really make money off his books. So he, he ended up dying dying poor. Though, though the the novel that no one reads today anymore really, it's called Julie or The New Heloise. Uh, it sold some enormous number of copies, I think. The number of, you know, editions, authentic and mostly counterfeit, was like 60 between, you know, its initial publication date and whatever it is, 1762, I think. And, uh, you know, like 1804. I mean, it just, people loved it at the time. Uh, But now it's kind of heavy-handedly sentimental.
2: But the, the sort of the idea, as I... As I, as you explained it, uh, as I got was was basically he thought that the way to uh, inculcate virtue in people was if they had a friend, like somebody, somebody that they knew and trusted who could serve as an example for them and sort of a tutor for them. But there, there was basically nobody in the in the real world who was, you know, or people like that were so rare in the real world that people were unlikely to ever encounter them. But if you created a fictional character like that, then people could read the book and 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 made virtuous and that he included the, the, virtuous character in these books is Rousseau. He sort of uh, includes himself as a, as this, as this model citizen. Uh, and, and then people criticized him saying, you know, you're not really like this. And he's like, well, no, no, but it's fiction. You know, I can make it, I can make it up.
1: I mean, I think, I think that, I mean, certainly that's, that's a good that. summary of, of my argument there. And, and I think, well, look, I mean, how do you become a better you, right? I mean, it, 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 helps to see, to, to have an example before your eyes of someone who does the right thing pretty consistently and, and, and as a way to, um, help you with, with moral training wheels. And I think, um, I mean, I guess you get a sense of Rousseau's impression of the state of organized religion in his day, you know, when, you know, essentially he's undertaking this project. In a, you know, in a way, because he thinks the churches aren't really, really doing it. Um, I mean, there is the the famous central section in, in his emile, where, and it, sort of an odd point in the novel where Rousseau sort of drops even more explicitly into autobiography, and he he describes. You know, modified, but his encounter with a uh, somewhat a very unorthodox Catholic priest from Savoy, who instructs him essentially in a kind of natural religion, and goes on to tell him, you know, a number of things about religion that probably seem that that many liberal Christians today would accept, but that in the you know second half of the eighteenth century got Rousseau condemned by both Catholic and Protestant authorities. This priest basically tells the young uh, the young Rousseau who had grown up um, a Protestant in Geneva, well, nobody really believes any religion other than the one they were brought up in. And God doesn't care that much about the difference between Catholics and Protestants. So, you should go home and be a good Protestant. And, you know, even though maybe God doesn't particularly care about all the very little details of the things I you know, the ritual I go through when I celebrate the Mass, you know, this is what I undertook to do and I'm going to undertake to do it as reverently as possible because, you know, God cares about our, um, you know, essentially our, our willingness to follow him and, and maybe God doesn't sweat the details. And to many people at the time that actually was, you know, a liberating and, uh, encouraging message, but, you know, obviously it got him in deep, deep trouble. The Uh, Archbishop of Paris condemned the book, ordered his arrest, he flees the country, uh, he can't really go to Geneva either because they condemned the book, and, uh, you know, worst of all, maybe his atheist friends were outraged that he had said anything nice at all about religion, and so he was Hmm. really, he was really in a tough spot there.
2: But so, so is it is is what you're saying that you think that the the principle is sound of having a novel that makes people virtuous and Rousseau was just too didactic in the way he went about it or it's or you think that that wouldn't really work anyway
1: you know i I mean at the risk of sounding like a total dork I mean there's a lot in Emile that I actually do find even personally inspiring um that um you know, that I do think, look, I mean, I think it's a much better way to learn how to become an excellent person to have like a real, um, close human relationship with somebody who's altogether admirable and, and, and excellent. And, and one can, you know, pattern oneself after them and, and grow in, strength of character and, you know, moral vision, basically. Um, you know, Rousseau's thought was that, you know, I think most people are not in that situation, or at least that was his perception. And, um, you know, I think still, even today for many people, you know, reading the Bible or something has that effect, you know, that they, they read the parables of Jesus and they think, you know, that you know, that has that effect for them. And, you know, there are, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm equating the two, but, you know, there are people, you know, the, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, right? And the folks who, who watch his videos or listen to his podcasts or read his books and think, oh, this is unlocking for me the secret of what it means to be excellent. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I think people... Need somehow to be. Sh- I mean, with I mean, there are obviously there are moral heroes and saints who kind of figure these things out for themselves. But I think for most of us who are not moral heroes and saints, it really helps to have guides of some kind. And I think we can find them in a lot of places. You know, Rousseau thought um, the affective story quality of novels was much more effective than writing you know, didactic philosophy treatises. And I think he's right about that.
2: Well, I mean, I've talked a lot on the show about how inspired I was as a kid by the eight virtues in the Ultima series of computer role-playing games. So I'm not going (laughs) to be throwing stones of anyone else being too dorky uh, for where they uh, get their find their inspiration from.
1: I never played those games.
2: Uh, yeah, they were, I mean, they were, you should check them out. I mean, they're, they're sort of popular kind of in the mid eighties to mid nineties sort of, but yeah, the, in Ultima four, the premise is that you, there are these eight virtues, you know, honesty, spirituality, honor, sacrifice, et cetera. And you need to go around and prove yourself in each of the eight virtues in order to win the game. So it's this really kind of interesting, uh,
1: unique sort of, uh, sort of game. Wow. Yeah. I should check it out. I'm really, the, one I remember is the, uh, one of the campaigns in i think the expansion of Warcraft 3 where you you have this kind of anti-hero now, narrative
2: Okay, I, I played Warcraft 2 but I didn't play Warcraft 3 so can't yeah. comment on that
1: Yeah, you you become gradually more evil until you know you finish the the human level and emerge, you know, fully on the side of the undead.
2: Hmm. That sounds really cool. Um, I did also want to ask you about, uh, there was a quote, let's see if I can find it. Um, uh, This is, the the director is talking to the students. I guess this is near the beginning of the book, but he says, fortunate boys, no pains have been spared to make your lives emotionally easy to preserve you as far as that is possible from having emotions at all. And just that thing about, you know, our, our top goal is to make your lives emotionally easy. Kind of reminds me of the stuff that people say these days about uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings on college campuses and that people are that students are being sheltered from um, challenging ideas rather than being encouraged to engage with them. And I was just curious if that's uh, anything that you've encountered or have any thoughts on.
1: Right. I mean, there, there is there's an interesting connection there. I mean, certainly, you know, within the confines of the novel they're not supposed to have any sort of longings, right? Unsatisfied, you know, mooning after some, you know, unattainable uh, romantic interest. Um, and they're not supposed to be, you know, longing for that job that they're never quite going to get because they aren't quite good enough because they're going to be perfectly designed for the one job they're going to get, and that will be great. Um, so I, so I don't worry about it too much. I'm like, I'm teaching political theory. It's about, you know, war and state building and all done in the shadow of like genocide and, you know, the possible extinction of the human species. People should kind of know what they're, they're doing when they're studying politics. Um, and I think there's some recent study that just came out suggesting that, that trigger warnings have no, have no real effect. Um. On student anxiety or anything like that, um, you know, I, I, I sort of try to think of those things through the little bit through the lens of student politics, and I wonder how much of that is really, you know, kind of this is the way the students can actually wield power over their professors by, you know, we're so afraid of seeming to be insensitive that that you know that's the the lever point that students can use to kind of organize and and issue demands that, that we'll comply with. And it's, it's not, I don't think really about anything. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, the make us feel safe and comfortable is, I don't know that that's either the actual, I mean, I know it's what's said, but I don't think it's the, the underlying motivating energy or the actual effect I know maybe that sounds too cynical to say it's all just kind of a weird power game and the centuries-long struggle between rebellious students and, you know, weak teachers. But <laughs> it's kind of what I think it is.
2: That's interesting because, I, like, I saw also that you, um, like, a year or two ago, you were on this panel about the importance of, free, of a free press in a democracy. Yeah. Like, do you feel like there is, like... I don't know what what do you what what's your, I don't I, I, I didn't see this <laughs> the panel so I don't know but I assume you took the the position the the pro free speech position or you you're concerned about free speech or
1: Yeah I, I mean I I definitely um, a pretty close to free speech absolutist and um I mean part of it is that anything I see being censored by somebody I assume is more that that's, I usually regard that as a reason to have some you know, well, maybe I should look again at that idea because <laughs> somebody's really afraid of it. Um, and, you know, it's just so, uh, you know, uh, uh, offensive to adults to, to say, you know, you, you, you can't hear this or you can't hear that. Um, and, and I think politically it's just deeply corrosive. Um, I think it's much better to let people talk they stop talking, the next thing is to start, you know, is violence basically. So, so I think for all kinds of reasons, um, free speech is important. And, you know, on a college campus, getting folks to, you know, like when you're 20, you're still super self-conscious. And I mean, certainly that's how I remember, you know, my teen years and and twenties. And and, you know, everybody wants to be accepted and to fit in. And there, very, there is a kind of, I don't even think it's a large group, but there's a kind of loud, censorious, you know, progressive set of students who really can't abide having their pieties challenged at all. And, and, and they can make life difficult for people who would even want to talk about alternative perspectives, let alone let alone actually embrace them, and and I think that has to be just resisted at all costs. And and you know there are a variety of devices for kind of introducing, sort of requiring people, even if it's just okay, as a matter of role play. You're going to imagine yourself who, you know, is part of the you know dissent in Roe versus Wade, and you're <laughs> role play that argument for us. Then sure, you don't believe it, blah blah blah, but just you know. Uh, imagine what it would be like to think that as a, as a way of getting people to broaden the, uh, what is it, the Overton window, right? That that yeah, space yeah. Of, of arguments you could talk about.
2: Well, I mean, certainly my experience was that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very secular and very liberal and I always found talking to you the most, you're a, in case it's not clear, a conservative Christian. Uh, I always found talking to you the most interesting. And uh, it, it just, it would just seem to me that going to, you know, studying political theory at at the college level and only ever talking or only ever hearing the thoughts of secular liberals, if that's what you are, it just strikes me as a complete waste of time. And, you know, it just seems like you want to talk to people who have different perspectives as much as you can. It seems like that's the whole point of an education.
1: Well, I mean, it was kind of you to say that. Um, Yeah, no, I I, I, I mean, I certainly agree. And, And the way you know the way i try to teach the history of political thought is really you know as much as possible to sympathetically get into the heads of the people i'm teaching you know um i have a harder time with some than with others but um you know it's important that you know and obviously the dialogue is the, the range of of arguments and and ideas is much much broader than um you know left versus right or, or or you know some whatever we're fighting about today in american politics you know it's should we have absolutism what kind of elite should rule uh you know how do you organize a democracy which rights should be protected there's so many and even those only scratch the surface um you know and that's why i mean to get back to using novels to teach political theory man think you said on one of the other podcasts, uh, episodes of yours that I listened to, that science fiction enables us to kind of try out, you know, in literature, very different sets of social arrangements and kind of look at how they are and, you know, through the medium of story, maybe even get beyond that kind of reflexive, it's different, it must be bad and and really to sort of play out in our heads well you know could this work what what would that mean if we change this thing what happens to these other things i think that's i think fiction does that really well i think speculative fiction does that really well and you know that's part of why i love teaching books like brave new world or we um you know wells is a little bit you know i don't know preachy um, but but still you know he has his charms so
2: well, yeah, and I thought that's one of the things that Brave New World did really well was, show, you know, like, like, there's these things that we just take for granted are good, like being a mother or living with your family. And so the people in the society see those things as you know taboo or embarrassing or gross or or undesirable like there's this 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 part about just like oh can you believe people used to live in like little houses with their families and those are the only people they saw all day and the mom was popping out kids and it's just and, and the kids are all horrified by this idea and it's just I always think it's so interesting when you can you know take take the things that we you know like the most or or that are the most sacred to us and and show how somebody how they could seem completely different from from a different point of view from someone from a different uh, you know, hypothetical culture.
1: Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's probably not by accident that that's introduced so early in the novel, right? That mother is their ultimate swear word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So we're, uh, we're running a little short
2: on time. Do, is there anything else about brief new worlds that you think, uh, think we should touch on before we, before we go, any other thoughts you had on it?
1: Sure. I, I mean, there, there are two things, I guess. So one is, I mean, even though I guess I don't altogether agree with the world controller's defense of Brave New World, you know, he is in, so, in some way embodies all the virtues that nobody else in Brave New World is really allowed to cultivate. That is to say, he had been a scientist, right? That's how they select the world controllers, the, the cleverest scientists who, uh, in the pure pursuit of knowledge go beyond the bounds of the kind of, um, working out the details of how to improve the industrial and, you know, medical processes, uh, of the brave new world, you know, somebody who finds actual new truths, they're a threat. And so you then say, okay, here's the story. You're either going to, you're either going to sacrifice your highest good for the sake of preserving the society. Right. Or, or actually you can, you can go, you know, They'll send you to an island um, where where you can hang out with other disaffected scientists. And um, you know, in 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 Plato's Republic, you know the, the 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 third sort of wave of paradox there in Book Five is that this city that they're talking about bringing into being through this conversation is going to be ruled by philosopher kings and queens. And the philosopher kings and queens. One of the things about you know. The choice of philosopher king as the ruler is that um, Socrates argues that you should want as a ruler somebody who would rather be doing something else, right? Because the somebody who would rather be doing something else is not ruling, you know, to satisfy some ego desire to be applauded or to have people stand up and listen to hail to the chief when you walk in the room, you know, and, and somebody who has something. Intrinsic that they care about, you know, isn't going to want the money and isn't going to be, right? And so this is what philosophers would rather be pursuing knowledge. Um, And, and in some sense, the, the ultimate choice of virtue there in the Republic is like, yeah, and then they willingly let that go to rule their fellow citizens to actually, to benefit them, right? That, that at some level, the highest, you know, the, the good is in some sense, this, this altruistic choice um, to serve others. And 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 you know, weirdly, that's actually Ma you know in in Brave New World. He's and he even says, right, the the happiness of others is a hard master, but but that's my duty. And so sort of the one admirable guy in the Brave New World, or maybe there you know there's ten world controllers, I guess, so maybe there's more. Um and there's even like this he quotes Jesus at one point early on, right, when the uh he, he interrupts the tour of the baby factory at the beginning and, uh, little kids start climbing all over him and the director of the factory shoots the boy and he says, right, suffer the little children. Uh, which, which is something Jesus says. And, you know, that, you know, you could almost think of this, right, embrace of self-sacrifice for the good of others as having this kind of, you know, that's the, the Christ story as well. So, um, anyway, I just think that's an, a remarkable feature um, of the, of the novel.
0: Yeah. And it's a pretty common
2: idea too, in dystopian uh, fiction, this idea that the people running this society secretly enjoy the things that they prohibit everyone else to have, you know, like you see that in, in this, you see that in Fahrenheit 451. uh, You see that in um, Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's a pretty, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how often that idea pops up.
1: Well, I mean, it's there in 1984 too, you know, except, you know, I think you get the sense that O'Brien, when O'Brien is eating the chocolate, you know, real chocolate or having real coffee, like in a weird sort of way, you know, he's tasting the sorrow of the inner party, (laughs) you know, that the point of it for him is the sort of sadistic, you know, boot on face for forever, you know, whereas mom you know, it's, is kind of wistful, like, well, you know, if they read Othello, they couldn't understand it and it would unsettle them. And, you know, may, yeah, it might be nice if they could have real art, but, you know, the price would be too high. I don't know. It's, it's more, you know, he's, it's not like he's enjoying the deprivation of others. That, that is the vibe I get in, in say, 1984.
2: It's also funny what you were saying about Plato, you know, this idea that the people who want to rule should not be allowed to do it. Right. Um, I don't know if you've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but Douglas Adams sort of has fun with that in this this galactic uh, uh, civilization in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. They have the same idea. And so they're like, okay, we're going to find the person who's most apathetic in the whole galaxy. And that's the person we're going to have make all the decisions. And it turns out that it's this, uh, this complete radical skeptic who doesn't believe anything is real and, and pretty much picks things com- completely arbitrarily. And so, you know, the reason, the wo- you know, I guess one reason the whole galaxy is so uh, dysfunctional is because this is the person uh, making all the decisions ultimately.
1: You know, I did read all those books, but a long time ago. Uh, is, I didn't think, I just remember Zaphod Beepleprox is the big party animal, but is that...
2: Well, yeah, but he's, he's the president, but he is the president. Realize,
1: he's, he is an idiot.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. And he doesn't realize that he's not actually making any important decisions. He's just sort of <laughs> a figurehead. <laughs> but he's so busy partying and everything that he, it never occurs to him. Like, wait, I'm not actually making any important decisions. Uh, so right, yeah, that's right. all part of the, the satire of the book. Um, all right, cool. So we should probably start wrapping this up pretty soon. Um, do you have any uh just I don't know any other final thoughts I guess do you have a book another book about Rousseau you're working on or anything
1: like that I do I do it I don't right hasn't I don't have a contract yet so I can't tell people where to get it um but I, I'm working on a book um, arguing you know if that the first book is mainly about Rousseau's discourse on inequality and Emile this project mostly about the the social contract but but also draws on uh, other of Rousseau's kind of more narrowly political writings and with some of his engagements uh even in the politics of Geneva he got involved in a kind of pamphlet fight in the uh the 1760s uh and so there's a a work actually now available in English called the letters written from the mountain uh that anyway is part of this whole Political spat that arises in the the wake of the the banning of Rousseau's books and the warrant for his arrest that was issued. Um, and so the argument there is basically that um, you know the the contractarianism, you know, in in the social contract is actually um, I don't know how to put this. I think it's a really good argument. I think um, if if we understand what Rousseau actually is talking about by the general will. Um, he's basically, you know, right to think of membership in political societies as constituted by something like, uh, our embrace of the social contract or the terms of the contract as, as he lays them out. Um, and, you know, looking at sort of what he demands of a legitimate government, I actually think there's a lot, um, you know, when you look at uh, modern constitutional and democratic states, we're actually much more Rousseauian than, than we think we are. I mean, there's a kind of very vividly obvious contrast that is, he's kind of envisioning a little city state, right? A sort of something better than Geneva, but on that scale. You know, and obviously those aspects of his, his thought we've, uh, had to repudiate or chosen to repudiate, whatever we, we're not going. To that scale, but, but still in this, um, society of equal citizens with at least aspirationally equal basic rights, universal suffrage, um, representative government, uh, you know, a lot of ways we're actually living up to those principles. Um, so that's, that's what I'm working on now. I'm really, um, well, I, I could say more, but, uh it wouldn't be about brave new world
2: anymore. (laughs) Well, that's good. I hope you get a contract soon. So, uh, so I can read that.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I hope to finish it soon. (laughs)
2: Um, I guess maybe the last thing you mentioned to me uh, over email that you're teaching the dispossessed now in in one of your utopian classes. So I I guess just, is there anything you want to say about like what's going on this semester in terms of dystopian, utopian science fiction stuff that you're doing?
1: Yeah. So this semester, um, you know, I'm teaching my part of this utopia cluster involves, uh, the Republic and Moore's utopia, which, you know, you sort of have to do, but nobody super enjoys. Um, Marx, you know, of course, Marx thought he wasn't a utopian, right? He was a scientific socialist and Engels has a famous essay, you know, outlining why they're, they're scientific and not utopian. And, you know, we assigned that, but, but still, this, this sort of optimistic faith that if you abolish private property, um, everything would work out kind of of itself does seem sort of utopian. Um, and yeah, I assign right after Marx the dispossessed because that society on Anoris, uh, so this is the novel by Ursula Le Guin. There are these planet and its moon. It's somewhat ambiguous which is the planet and which is the moon. Um, the sort of, Anarchist communists live on the, one of the barren moons and they have a technologically, well, you know, it's mostly their society is mostly simple. They import high technology items from, from the other planet. Um, but it's, it, it's the one imagining of a society without property that seems reasonably plausible to me and, you know, we see it in some, we see it in its more attractive light, and we also see criticisms of it, both internal, right, the the sort of ways in which the Anoresti society fails to live up to its own ideas. And then, you know, we get this, this marvelous contrast when uh, the anarchist scientist goes down to the, the other planet, uh, Urus, which is kind of an Earth-like planet, and he's in a kind of Spends most all of his time there, I guess, in the consumeristic America-ish, you know, society of commerce and inequality and money and property and wealth. And he's just viscerally repulsed. And we learn a little bit of the other society on that world. I think it's called Thu, and it's it's a sort of USSR-type state socialism, which sort of everybody agrees is kind of horrible. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I, th- I that... I love that novel, and I think you know the the central insight there. You know that that idea that the revolution has to live in your heart. You know that 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 the society uh, with it, to make that society without property work. I mean, even apart from the organizational challenges, requires a kind of moral transformation that's not not easy to accomplish, but. But it, when it can be accomplished, at least under certain circumstances, it brings some pretty great spiritual rewards.
2: Yeah, what you were saying about Marx there reminded me of on our foundation panel, we were say, we were wondering if if Karl Marx was the person aside maybe from literal religious prophets in in history who uh, was most confident in his ability to predict the future, and at least uh, among the people on the panel, we couldn't really come up with anyone else who we thought had more confidence in his ability to to accurately uh, predict the course of future events.
1: Yeah, nobody's coming to mind. I mean, you know, and what's fascinating, though, is that he really, you know, he's really sure that getting rid of property is going to solve our problems because property is so clearly the root of all our problems. And yet it gets so vague very quickly as to what happens precisely after you know, okay, so the state will abolish private property. Okay, so then, then what happens?
2: Yeah, it's like the the underpants gnomes kind of. I don't know if you know that
1: yeah. thing. Yeah, the like, like,
2: happens. <laughs> it's like yeah, like abolish property, something, something, something. You know, uh, utopia, and then the the stuff in the middle is a little, little vague there. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So this is this has been great. So let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Joseph Reisert. And again, he is the Harriet S. Wiswell and George C. Wiswell Professor of American Constitutional Law at Colby College. So Joe, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Dave, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Joseph Reisert for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com music and voiceover produced by yours truly jack kincaid if you enjoyed this program tell your friends if you didn't enjoy it tell no one thank you for listening